Well, the world certainly needs some changing in a positive direction, that's for sure. We try and undertake that uh, that labor of love here on the Radio Ranch. Roger Sales with you Friday morning. People's Patriot Network, of course, and uh, Fridays uh, we have Brent Winters. He hadn't quite joined us yet, but I know he's around somewhere, so he'll pop in here in a second. Uh, lots going on. Uh, you know, the quickening has quickened or is continuing to quicken. Uh, there are so many uh, important things happening in so many areas. Uh, we try and cover them, of course, on different political, geopolitical, and financial areas during the week. Today, when we bring Brent on, it always goes back to where it originates, back in the spiritual realm. And uh, I have, I can't ever remember meeting anybody in my life, quite honestly, that has a better handle on it than uh, Mr. Brent Allen Winters, his research, his background, all the years that he's put into translating his own Bible and studies in the common law and uh, things that are so indigenous to our heritage that we've totally lost touch with, uh, for the most part, a small uh, wrangly band here that we are. Uh, we try and not only educate ourselves and learn about it, to reinstitute it, at least in our own personal lives and our spheres if possible, uh, but to, uh, you know, try and expose it to the masses and realize uh, what we had and what we've lost and why and how and uh, who. Shall we never forget who? Uh, all those things we cover on a regular basis. I guess Brent will join us here in a minute. I don't know if he's on the road or you never know about Brent. That's for certain. And uh, it showed you. Ah, let's see. Here's Chris calling in. Chris going to call in and join us right off the bat. So uh, even before Brent, we get Chris this morning. Hey, man, how you doing? Well, so far, so good. Good morning, everybody. Looking forward to Mr. Brent Allen Winters. Yeah, me too. I don't know. We were uh, I, uh, we had a couple of IMs, and then, uh, you know, you, like I said, you never know with Brent. Don't know if he's on the road. Don't know what the distractions might be, but I know he'll join us because he's aware. It looks like he stepped away from his computer. Uh, pretty interesting things. Uh, Chris and I spoke last night, yesterday, uh, after the show. Uh, Paul sent me a video. I'll, I'll, I'll post it. We're going to talk about it a lot. I'm sure, uh, I'll post it, uh, at the bottom of the show description for uh, setup for next week. It's about an hour long. People need to watch it. Probably want to watch it more than once. Uh, I called Chris and alerted him and sent it to him last night. And have you had a chance to look at it? It's a, uh, let me just give it, I'll give a little preface here. Setup. Uh, it's a, an Aussie, a, a fellow from Australia, it talks like some of my friends from Argentina that were from South Africa. They just got the exact same accent. And um, uh, it's on his research uh, as it deals with Australia in the realm of the birth certificate. Now, um, we, of course, are going to focus on that with getting Paul back on. And Paul's got the connection to John in Scotland. And uh, they're having, uh, evidently, a considerable amount of success with this. Uh, but this guy had some information and, and some analysis and some comparisons with uh, new information on that that I'd never seen before. I, I sent it out to a few people, and including Glenn. And, uh, you know, Glenn is... Glenn has not been as active in our area as he had. I, I think personally that uh, the frustration of having the answers and not being able to get it out even in a court 
uh, because of the different aspects. One thing, it being so darn complicated, even the judges can't understand. Uh, and I think he just said, you know, to heck with this and turned his back and went off doing something else. But we still stay in contact with each other. And I shot him that last night with my little message of, uh, the day he doesn't have the feudal system angle on it, but he's got everything around it. It it looked like, and I've only watched it once. Uh, did you have a chance to look at that at all, Brent, uh, uh, Chris? I have not looked at the brochure. I did look at the politics of cleavage, and I found that to be very intriguing, uh, on point, and well-produced. I do have to have a little time to look at that brochure, and I, it's really critical information, but I did download the video on my computer just in case it may appear in the future, which is not unheard of. Yeah, no, it's not unheard of, um, but he doesn't, I don't think he mentions the J word in there at all. <laughs> he refers to the Rothschilds a few, few times, and, you know, they don't have time to look over all these things. And so evidently they're running them through an algorithm uh, and looking for keywords, et cetera. But uh, there's a lot of very, very provocative information on there. And when you watch it, um, he, he only mentions the word resonant uh, once or twice there towards the end, and he doesn't put it in a context of its original legal meaning and what it really does. And he uh, centers everything on the bank, uh, uh, holding the birth certificates. Now, what he did down there uh, in Australia, and it appears to be a little bit different system from ours, uh, but he found a way to not only get the birth certificate of enslavement but also go back and get an original one where they drop the christian name and uh, the the most interesting thing i think about the whole hour to me was on the side of the christian like we i guess we'd call it the common law birth certificate in our parlance here uh, as we're uh, learning kind of together on this uh, over on the side, and the the Christian one had dropped the uh, the surname, and um, but on the side was a statement with a signature and certification from the head guy in Australia that this was a true and uh, accurate uh, uh, copy. Um, like I said, it's pretty complex the way he presents it, and he centers it around the bank as opposed to having the effect that under this condition of servitude and he does call it voluntary uh, voluntary servitude but he doesn't connect it to the feudal era and that is the big connection i think that we've got that allows people to really understand what these guys have done uh but it's quite an interesting video a number of you are going to watch it and uh, i uh, was uh, exchanging some messages with paul and Paul has talked to John, uh, the guy in Scotland that we first found out about the common law birth certificate from. Haven't done too much or touched up with it or followed up on it in a number of months. And he's continued along his quest and evidently had some uh, pretty good successes on the top of the ones that he already had. Uh, but he did talk to him and he said he was scheduled to talk to him again. And, uh, so I'm going to go ahead and start promoting that next Wednesday when Paul's back with us, this will probably be an in-depth discussion next Wednesday. Okay. But, uh, we can preface it. 
uh, preface it and set it up with this Australian video that's got so many interesting things in it. Boy, I, I, he has made some spectacular connections in there, I got to tell you. Uh, back with uh, how the, the birth certificates are, are held. He shows the building that they were originally held in. They've moved them to a new building now. And both of them are just absolute slap pack full of satanic symbols. I mean, with like Satan on the top of the building sitting in, in a throne on each side of the door. Okay. I mean, it, it is really startling. It was startling to me when he showed it. Uh, and then the new building that they're housed in, much more modern, and the the big logo on the whole side of the building, it's probably 20 or 30, maybe even more stories high. Glass, one of these newer glass buildings, Chris. And on the side is, mm-hmm. a, is a snake from top to bottom. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> oh, it, it is just, it's really a startling video. I want to go back and watch it again. He's got that classic Australian accent. and But he's got some pretty good information. And uh, uh, I think it's going to be a, a quite an addition to, to us because I think this may be much more of an easier key to the masses than than my approach you know you know what you got to learn here we, we heard patrick call in yesterday what it's confusing it yeah it is you know i mean i had to work with it for years and years before i got my arms around That's it not an pardon me it's not an accident it's confusing it is cleverly and intensely devised to be that way i would use the word diabolically too and and as i've told people yeah. all along you you can't get into this and spend your time understanding that to where you've got an understanding of it without realizing that there is no mortal man that could put that together okay i mean it is it's so intricate it's so layered it's so deceptive uh, uh it just all of those things and about 10 or 12 more adjectives if i could think of them right off the bat but uh but this this common law birth certificate is easy compared to my stuff you know uh and as i think about it and try and understand it both things accomplish the same thing it appears and that's rebutting the presumption Okay, and and the presumption you're born into this status and therefore their property and that presumption rides unless you somehow go back and rebut it at a base level. And that's what the affidavit to the secretary of state does for sure. And I and I just get the feeling in my heart of hearts that that's what this birth certificate, common law birth certificate could do, but in a much easier way. And that is what we're looking for is something that's simple we can get to the masses. Okay. You know, Roger, it's uh, very interesting that your conceptualization and overview of what's in that video that I haven't seen yet comports basically with what I have observed. Pardon me just one second while I clear my throat. Is that our original similar organic Christian appellation, that's a technical phrase, Christian appellation, that supports with what you're speaking of, of not including the house of, the abode of, the family of, the tribe of, surname, that doesn't belong to us to bring stain, shame, or disdain on the name. And that's why back in ancient biblical, pre-biblical times of Gilgamesh or the garden or whatever other period in time you want, they didn't call us uh, with your family surname. It was the house of or the tribe of or from the loins of or other a- aspects that referred to the familial relationship of the genetic emanation that you derive from and your original manufacturer's gestation 
or certificate of origin on that live original. It actually has your biometric testamentary evidence of your finger and footprints, handprints, on that original certification copy of the long form of what we know as the birth certificate that is then securitized, monetized, and traded on in international places on these QCIP the, uh, accounts without our knowledge, therefore being engaged in human trafficking, identity theft, and other crimes against uh, people and violations of international and uh, American law. Well, I'm really interested for you to see this particularly because this guy goes into a lot of the kind of things you do with words, okay? And and you'll particularly, you know, ha- get ring your chimes when you see that, I'm sure. Uh, but the other things on the uh, the securitized certificate, they don't have, they do have, uh, there's just so much there, I need to watch it again. Uh, but he's got both copies up on a, on a board, and he shows you back and forth. And and the uh, the the big thing that he's centered on is the bank. All this goes back to the bank, the bank, the bank. He doesn't ever mention laws and the fact that they've got jurisdiction on you and can pass man-made laws versus God's laws and all those things. He just doesn't have a grasp on that yet. But, boy, one thing he did do a sterling job on was go back and connect it all back to the Federal Reserve and, and the United States uh, institutions there in D.C. on how they're running this through and securitizing it, even back to the SEC, the security. And exchange commission. Uh, so, like I said, there's a lot in there. Uh, you're not going to get it on one view, and uh, uh, we'll continue to move forward on this because I think it's a very viable path for us to walk. Uh, I sent it to uh, Brian Howard, of course, who's done our own research from from our group standpoint, and come up with basically the same thing, maybe even a little bit more poignant from the fact that we know the whole basis of the scam is the feudal system. Okay, they've imported the feudal system all over the world. And the reason that they did that, of course, is because they loved the feudal system and because the people were property and it rode down your lineage. So they could literally, when they brought this in and instituted it, all they had to do was get the front end of people enslaved and in the system. And the generations that followed were all born into the same condition. Okay, and uh, uh, it doesn't just deal with the banks and the monetary aspect. It deals with them having the ability to make and enforce man-made laws versus God's laws. You know, the all the basic dialectic things we've talked about. You only get your rights from one or two places. You either get them from God or you get them from man. And, uh, you know, God's plan is freedom and Satan's plan is slavery. All these very simple statements that just frame the dialectic, okay? And and that's what I've been striving for for so many years is to get this down into an understandable, communicable, basic way to present it to people where you show them the stark differences, and you don't know how they're going to react, but but that's about the best way to cull through the herd and find the ones that are interested. That you know, and now hey, I, it's just the conclusion I've come to. I may be wrong, but it's the conclusion I've come to after many years of being totally immersed in this. And and it goes back to the old kiss principle: keep it simple, stupid. And uh, you got to admit, most of our people are just flat functionally illiterate. They're they're in a they're in a catatonic state. They're absolutely on the hamster wheel, and they're mostly, for the most part, totally functionally illiterate. 
Well, we will serve no wine until it's time, and confuse Ion is the name of the game for the synagogue of Satan. Well, remember, it was Brent that uh, uh, came on here and said victory, I think, is uh, means confusion in the enemy's camp. And, boy, they have sowed some confusion. Uh I go through, I still go through emotional ups and downs in this personally because it gets darn frustrated. Uh, I get frustrated because we got so many answers that could have such a dramatic impact and it's just so hard to get it across because of the confusion they've sown in our camp. Because of all the dialectical words, because of all the, the financial pressures they bring to bear on people and that overrides people's lives so, so overwhelmingly. Uh, the the rat race uh, uh, society that's been developed, the uh, absolute invasion of all of these uh, other ethnicities into our culture, the stripping of us of our connections back to God and the Bible, uh, the, taking the Ten Commandments out of schools, uh, you know, all the things that they've done, it's a litany of things. And uh, we're under in, absolutely intense attack. So there is there is sanity here. Uh, it may not be totally easy to get your arms around. You might have to work at it a little bit. But freedom ain't free. Boy, if there's one overriding lesson I've learned, it's that right there. I don't argue with you at all. It definitely requires eternal vigilance and study, uh, diligent research. We must inform ourselves, Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for a knowledge, and if it's not true, it doesn't count. Um, and, and they are being destroyed. We're being destroyed on every front, and it's, it's really sad. And uh, so the, I guess the overriding objective here is to spread this message and, and buttress our ranks as best we can. And uh, the simplicity of it is super important. And it may just be that this common law birth certificate is a much bigger key than the one I've been toting around. Um, remains to be seen. We'll see what happens between now and next Wednesday. I'm going to put, I'll put this uh, birth certificate. Actually, I can go on, if you want to go on YouTube and find it, I can get the name of it here if you'll give me a second to look. Uh, otherwise, I'll put it in the show description today. Uh, it's a pretty simple title. It's over on YouTube, believe it or not. And it's called birthing hyphen certificates, birthing B I R T H I N G hyphen certificates, no space, uh, pretty powerful video. The guy's name is Rodney Romley. Rom That's a good Australian name, isn't it? Romley Stewart. And he has obviously done a bunch of not only research, but thinking in here. And when he, when he started to, to understand the difference in the two certificates, I don't think we've got two in our country, okay? But we may. Well, I, I alerted Brian Howard to this yesterday. Uh, I left a message for him and sent him the link last night and uh, asked him if he was working on a kind of a, any kind of a paper because he said he was going to do a write-up on, on his findings. And he replied back that he's working on a PowerPoint presentation. So it may be that we've got a PowerPoint presentation in our futures from Brian on what he's been able to find out. Um, but it, uh, uh, it's just 
pretty darned interesting what this guy's put together and uh some aspects of this i had not considered and certainly didn't know and we'll see if there's differences in the jurisdictions on the way they handle this you know there really has to be chris when you understand that uh, all these jurisdictions they don't have laws like we do they didn't have state citizens uh they didn't have all the things that the the links that these people have had to go through to get us into this quagmire uh, uh over there in in australia maybe some of the other uh, jurisdictions but i promise you it is mystery babylon the beast system of revelation okay um and uh it's there they got a lot of problems they got a lot of problems going on and a lot of things are backlashing on them but they've still amassed so much power and they've got the still power over this money and uh, uh or the currency excuse me it's not money as currency well they got they got power over the money too look at the spot price of gold uh look at the spot price of silver um but I can see, and I, I, the people that really follow this and, uh, judiciously, if you will, uh, can see that they're being exposed and they're being weakened. Um, so pretty interesting. Well, you know, Roger, this double booking system, this duplicity, this double-mindedness, uh, I think that's James 1.8, a double-mindedness of unsound and uncertain in all their ways. Yep. This is the operational tactical position these people have adopted since the very beginnings of man on this earth, in my esteemed observation. And this is what we see with the CAFRA accounts, the double booking, where they hide away hordes of money they steal from the people and scream poor mouth, victim, victim, victim. We need more money to fix all these things that are not fixed that you've been paying for out the nose forever because we've been rat-holding the money away in our own private pockets and we want to put the load back on you. We take the benefits and you take the obligations. It is absolutely insane, insidious, and demoniac. Well, it's demon-possessed demon and inspired without a doubt. Uh, and uh, Greg, Greg dug up a... Greg dug up, dug up an article this morning uh, as I was drinking my coffee. Uh, I was reading it, and uh, oh, I did save that article. Good. Uh, it's over on uh, henrymacau.com. Maybe I'll put this in the, uh, in the show description today, too. Uh, very good article, The Muslim Invasion of Europe in Historical Perspective. Uh, and it says, let's see, it remains a fact, and this is a quote here, it remains a fact, says the Jewish Encyclopedia. I'll repeat that, says the Jewish Encyclopedia, quote, that the Jews, either directly or through their co-religionists in Africa, encouraged the Mohammedans to conquer Spain in 709. Whatever they, wherever they went, the Jew threw open to them the gates of the principal cities so that in an incredibly short time the Africans were masters of all of Spain, save the little kingdom of the Austria, Austrias, A-S-T-U-R-I-A-S. I've never seen that word before. A-S-T. U-R-I-A-S. It's not Austrians, it's Austrias. In the northern mountains, I guess that's of Spain, where the Christian survivors who were unwilling to accept Islam reassembled and prepared to win back their heritage. That's from the Jewish Encyclopedia. Uh, and and uh, what I really appreciated, and I'll give a little background on this, 
I hadn't thought about it in a long time and hadn't seen too much from Henry McCaw lately. You're familiar with him, uh, Chris, I assume, and many, much of the audience, I would think. Um, McCaw is an Ashkenazi Jew. And what really got him into all this years ago was feminism. And the deeper he got into it, it, it expanded. And I'm going to read his disclaimer, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit of background that's important to what we do here. Uh, the disclaimer he's got posted here, he says, why do I, a Jew, publicize this info? Isn't it anti-Semitic? Quite the opposite. Many Jews like myself are not part of this age-old satanic agenda. We weren't told. We weren't asked. We are not going to take the blame for something we bitterly oppose. That's a nice disclaimer from Henry. Okay, uh, some of you may have known this, but back years ago, he was real, real thick with uh, uh, Rents, Jeff Rents, and Rents published a lot of his articles. Had him on the on his radio show quite often, or at least frequently. And then they had they got into a urinating match over something Henry wrote about Fukushima, and the fact that it was a false flag. Uh, and so they just parted ways. And, uh, I believe it was after that as my book was, hello, as my book was about, uh, come again, Chris. I'm still here. Uh, I would say that Fukushima was a devious attack posed as a false flag because it was intentionally unleashed don't, on the world to destroy the oceans and don't know aspects. don't know don't want to go there i want to just use it as a reference point in what i'm saying so that was the point of demarcation for them but it was around uh, after that that my, that i finished the book and before the book was published sovereign to surf government by the treachery and deception of words because of henry's articles and stuff and i was had had been reading his articles and and we i think we'd communicated a little bit on email and i sent him a copy of the book before it was released and um he passed it on to a guy named gary kinghorn and uh gary kinghorn uh, who i met and got to know a bit hadn't had any contact with him in a number of years i'd like to know what he's doing uh, he was down in Argentina. He had uh, run down to Doug Casey's Estancia up there uh, south of Salta and without his family, didn't come along. He went down there on one of those, one of those uh, open houses they have or, or had twice a year and bought, bought a lot and contracted to build a house. And uh, Gary, and I don't know if he still has this position or not, was the international head of merchandising for Cisco. And they had lived out in the Bay Area. And he was ready to get out. He's a huge Christian. He followed that uh, pastor up in Oregon and uh, that has quite a following out there and, and is a, a real solid pastor. I don't know. I can't remember his name. But uh, that he, uh, Gary was uh, one of his advocates. And uh, so Henry McCaw sent i guess the book to gary to um well review look at and gary wrote a wonderful review of my book 
And uh, we, it was back in the early days when I was on Jeff Bennett's show, and we were still giving this the old way, and I was only on once a week and all that stuff. And um, so Gary wrote this, and all of a sudden I get back an article on Henry McCaw's site as a review of my book. And um, I remember the night that we were on the air that we announced Jeff took that review before it was really public and put it up on his website. And uh, we announced it on the air that night. And there was, it blew his server out, Jeff's, for four hours with the people that were trying to get to it. Okay. Because we'd had about eight, eight months or so of background at that point. And then the manuscript had been taken and, and edited and built into the book. And the book wasn't available for release about a month away. And, uh, and they put that, uh, put that uh, review up. And I remember Bennett came back and he said, man, it blew my server out for four hours with the people that were trying to get to it. And so, uh, hey, Brent, welcome along, man. I didn't know where you were, where you were going. Let me just finish what we're into here. And so uh, that established the relationship with Gary Kinghorn. And I later, uh, in six months or so later in the, in the spring when they had their next open house, he was living in, in Cafayate by that point, had brought his family down. And uh, I went up there to the open house to try and promote the book to these financial people that all of Casey's big buddies up there. And there was something that happened that, in that trip. I've talked about it on the air. Hell, I'll probably get emotional telling it. But I was up there at Gary's house, beautiful house, lovely, lovely valley up 5,000 feet up in the Andes, just absolutely spectacular valley. And it's a lovely setting. And and I, we were sitting on his back porch, and it was right at noon. And uh, Gary had three children, two girls, and, a, and a, the youngest was a son. And they had uh, homeschooling going on. And so we were sitting out there about midday and behind his house was a lake and everything is green and just a, just a, a picturesque setting. Okay. And we're sitting out there, Gary and I talking on the back porch, sitting at a table and the children came home from school and his oldest daughter, and I don't remember her name, but she was like a little Shirley temple. You know, I mean, uh, with long blonde hair and locks all curled and just absolutely beautiful, beautiful young, I don't know, 10, 11 year old, 12 year old girl. And, uh, the kids come up to the back porch and we're sitting there and, uh, Gary says, Kathy, if that was her name, Kathy, this is Roger sales. And this little girl cocked her head with those beautiful blonde curls and she put her hands on her hips and she goes, Oh, you're Roger sales. She said, I want to thank you for writing a book that even a kid could understand. And I'm telling you, you could have blown me over with a feather. Okay. And here we have all this trouble getting this information across to people where they can understand it. And here's this little 12-year-old girl telling me that. And I just melted, okay? Welcome, Brent. Wow, Roger, that must mean you use you don't use big words. 12 years old isn't very much. She read the whole book, apparently. Huh? I guess. And, and she went on inside the house, and Gary looked at me, and she said, he said, I don't know where she got it. But obviously, she picked it up around his office or something. And let me also say, obviously, she's extremely intelligent. Her dad uh, it was, and maybe still is, the uh, 
head of international merchandising for Cisco, the big computer company. Uh-huh. Uh, and they had homeschooled their kids. They were really raised well. And she was obviously one of the brightest bulbs in the drawer. But anyway, we're just killing time. Wait and see where you show up. And I was uh, talking about this article. I think I forwarded it to you that Greg dug up this morning. Uh, so, uh, Brent, how in the world are you doing, man? Well, I'm all right. I'm in a place where I smell the reek. It's a reek of cattle manure, and you can't get rid of it. There must be a large cattle yard out here real close. I know there are a lot of cattle around here, so I'm sure there's a collection point out here because it's so overwhelming. But that, that stuff never bothered me. I suppose like skunks. Skunks never bothered me either. People say, oh, I smell a polecat. I'd say, yeah, I do too. You know, it just seemed normal. I um, if it was if it was offensive, I'd say so, but it isn't. And hog manure, cattle manure, it just doesn't bother me. Matter of fact, it sounds like, as we used to say at home, smells like money. It's what money smells like, right? And yeah, so what... I'm I'm happy. I'm okay. Uh, winter time's coming, and um, the snow is blowing in in different places. It's, the temperature is dropping. Although yesterday in Dallas it was 72 degrees, I can testify to that. 72 degrees, and uh, now whether or not that'll last, it can change overnight, but there's warm weather down there. The, the, the planet is still dynamic. That means the seasons are still coming and going, so I'm happy. Uh, nothing unusual happening in my life except the normal struggles, which uh, I was dealing with one this morning, but go ahead. Well, uh, you know, usually Brent, Brent isolates himself from this stuff, and, and I can't uh, for personal and for professional reasons. Uh, so when I come across interesting stories during the week, I shoot them to Brent. I uh, don't yeah. know if they register like they're like bullets. You just shoot them and maybe they'll hit a target. Oh, yeah. uh, and uh, so, but this week, well, there's a lot happening. The quickening is quickening. All right. And oh, yeah. uh, I, I dropped you a number of stories this week that I felt were important to our discussions and, and to you and, and certainly to me. Yeah. Uh, any of those uh, hit the mark, did they? Well, you've got this one, uh, this, this Aussie. He's an Aussie, and he talks about birthing certificates. And we opened the show with this, and I'm anxious to get yeah. your uh, your input on it. So why don't <laughs> well, you? I, I just give you just a general sense impression, but it was interesting, uh, nah, curious to me that this fellow takes it all back to the United States and Washington, D.C., and he's down on the other side of the bottom of the or the other side of the planet, down under, as they say. and uh, But he takes all this trouble back to D.C. And I don't think he's probably wrong. The whole thing about, of course, it, it's obvious, Roger. I don't think it's even a matter of discussion to say that every person is viewed, the powers that be view every person as human chattel, a breathing soul, a slave. Uh, because all government debt is not laid on governments. It's laid on the people that support the governments and the governments then exact money out of them at the points of gun with guns and whips and blackjacks that's axiomatic and as governments get bigger and more powerful which they are now bigger and more powerful than they have ever been especially the united states when it comes to raw force the united states is the strong arm for the evil empire the bankers no question well that means that every one of us is they view us as a slave, and that's part of their religion. Now, what I'd like to see more done is uh, in this vein of this fellow here, for example, this Aussie, you know, he's putting the, putting the dots together, connecting them. Uh, God has given us an absolute prototype for this system, 
And the whole Bible, from cover to cover and lid to lid, is a playing out of this, this, this device of human chattel and how it works. We're, we're, we're told where it started. We're told, uh, we're given examples of it then through his, the history the Bible records of how it plays out, how the evil empire then finally gets control. We get to the, the, the gospel time, the Newer Testament, and we see that it has reached a point of sophistication. And uh, the Messiah of God dealt with it directly. It, the, and then you read through the epistles and go on through, and all of the epistles are all about how to deal with this evil system that that views all of yeah. mankind as chattel, as slaves uh, to for their good. Animals, if you will. Go ahead. Oh, well, I think that was a little something from Chris. I, I, what I would oh, bring oh. to bear is, and I promoted it earlier this week. I don't know if you've read this, Brent, or not. Over on my website, SovereignToSurf.com, there's a 1930s book that was published by John Hopkins University titled Historical Jurisprudence. And the first 90 pages of that deal with the Babylonian Merchant Code. And they give some very specific examples in there from Babylonian, uh, you know, writings and history. And the one that I remember with the way I got turned onto the book, these were excerpted in an article. And they were giving the example of how one sold himself into slavery. And they actually used in Babylon the word goyim. And they say in that paragraph that they're the same as cattle. And, of course, that transcends to today. Uh, but I would highly encourage for people to get background, as you said one here on day, and, and I talked about it the other day, Brent, yesterday, I think. When you know the basics, anything's easy, okay? You made that statement oh, one yeah. day. It was very yeah. profound to me, okay? Because I've yeah. striven so, strived so, uh, so, so, so much to try and learn these basics, and I found for me that they were the key to everything. All right. Uh, but uh, uh, learning and getting the background on that Babylonian merchant code and the origins of it, at least as it became more finalized from Samaria into Babylon, is really important for understanding uh, to me. Uh, and I try and promote it to the audience. Take, go over, download the book. It's free. Uh, the first 90 pages, not going to take you too long to read it. I think you'll find it absolutely fascinating reading. And as it opens up in that uh, 90 pages, they say the great Babylon's great contribution uh -huh. was to reduce everything in the society down to the abstract form of contract. Yeah, and it does come to that. But even behind Babylon, there is the founding of Babylon. And to understand I, all those, the, the merchant code, of course, we deal with and what happened in Babylon, the sophistication it reached there. You mentioned, for example, um, they even used the word goyim. Well, that makes sense because the way they recorded things in Babylon was in cuneiform. In cuneiform, you have these little styluses and you have a clay tablet and you press the letters into the tablet. You press the the lines, and you make different letters, and we've got a lot of those. We got, I mean, they're available, cuneiform, and the the, the writing isn't like, the, it's a Semitic kind of a writing, so the, the word goyim is a Semitic word, and goyim is plural, so as in the Bible a lot, it means the nations, and everywhere you go, you see that uh, you're, everybody, it's, it's a human propensity that their little group is, are human, and nobody else is. I mean, you can even go to the even the primitive people, the, the Cheyenne Indian tribe, Cheyenne means essentially equivalent to our word human being. They didn't think that the other tribes around there were human at all, much less the white folk. 
uh, they had this idea in their head that they were the only one. The Chinese people believe that uh, historically and anciently. The Japanese people believe that. That's why they ended up going to war. They believed all that stuff. It was wrong, but they believed it. And then, of course, the Nazis, they got into doing that. And we all have a tendency to, we would, we would go there. You know, I grew up, uh, there was an Amish, there were Amishmen around, uh, not far from us was a settlement. And I grew up knowing that uh, I was the goyim to them. I was the, the Gentile, and they called us the English. They were the Germans, and we were the English. And the English were to be abused, and they did abuse us. In this way, if you did business with them, you weren't going to get the upper hand. They were good, and they had every angle. But here's something we can also look at the Amish to point out uh, the thing that uh, this fellow, this also is trying to point out. The Amish, uh, for, uh, for years, they were, with, they were Mennonites first. The, people think the Mennonites came from the Amish. That's not it. The, the Amish broke off from the Mennonites. Uh, Menno Simons was the founder of the, the sect called the Mennonites. And uh, the Amish finally decided, well, he's not radical enough for us, and the Mennonites aren't radical enough. We've got to go even further. And they did. And they said, we're going to separate ourselves entirely from the world order. We're not going to have anything to do with it. You know, they don't, the Amish, they don't tie up to electric lines is because they don't want to tie into the system. The, use, the reason they don't use gasoline is because, a ga well, sometimes they do. It depends on the cars. They don't use cars because they don't want to get out on the roads and tie into the system and get a driver's license. But they've got gasoline motors, motors on their hay balers, see. They won't buy a tractor because that's getting too close to the system, but they mount a motor, a gasoline motor, on their hay baler, and they pull it with horses. So they're not against electricity. They have generators. They generate their own electricity if they want it, some of them, not all of them. But the, they, they want to separate themselves from the system of Babylon. That's what they tell themselves. Go ahead, Roger. You want to say something? Good idea. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. I was getting to that. So even though these fellows, I don't agree with uh, their fundamental religious tenets and the way they govern themselves, but uh, but they have presented a picture to us of separating from the system. Now, this Aussie, and you sent me this video, uh, all of the detail he talks about in the birth certificates and all, those are some of the little ways, of course, that the evil empire likes to use to make themselves feel better. It doesn't change reality. A birth certificate saying you're a slave doesn't change the fact of the matter. You're not. Uh, if you don't want to be, no. say no. But what yeah. it, Exactly. You just hit it right on the head. It doesn't change the system. It shifts the presumption. And the way oh, that yeah. you get the presumption back shifted is ahead, to disallow it and send them. And you got to do something specific, and you got to do it with specific people. But once you do that, you can shift that presumption back. And uh -huh. when, you, gotta, when, when you do, you absolutely uh -huh. steal their power. Well, the, uh, May I ask? Sure, Chris. Jump in there. Well, you know, Roger mentioned first in his historical jurisprudence that the negative contract, contract as they called it in the writing, this is where that rebuttable presumption, that tacit presumed contract where there may not be full disclosure to all parties making it null, void, and nugatory, uh, comes into play. And to presume someone without any fact-specific basis is a preposterous and absurd theory, uh, that negative contract presumption. Well, look, at, it's grown into a preposterous and ridiculous system, Chris. It, it is yeah. the basis of all of this is the shift in the presumption. 
And you see, that's what he was doing with the birth certificate, and that's what we do with the affidavit. And I should tell you, Brent, that uh, uh, John uh, Paul sent me that yesterday. And uh, he has had conversations with this fellow in Scotland, John, and is going to have another one, I guess, over the weekend. And Paul's on every Wednesday from now on. And uh, no doubt that this will be next Wednesday's show and we'll get some updated uh, information from John because we haven't, uh, with all the confusion the last few months, we haven't really been able to stay on top of it. And my feelings are that, you know, I know my stuff and how difficult it is to get across to people, to untie all those knots and get all these things in your head where you can get your arms around it. But be that as it may, if this common law birth certificate works the way that we're seeing that it works, or at least being told that it works, uh, uh-huh. It is a much simpler approach to more to the masses. Okay. Oh, I see. I see your point. Uh-huh. And so yeah. that that is my hope, and and to give people another avenue, and uh, uh, we'll see. You know, we're just trying to walk this path and get all the brush out of the way and see where the path is and follow the right one. Uh, but that's uh, that's pretty interesting. There were some other things in that video that really startled me. Did you see the old building where they had them originally housed with the satanic symbols all over that thing with oh, Satan yeah. sitting up yeah. there on yeah. the roof on yeah. each side of yeah. the door, for Lord's sake? Hey, these people that gain power are demon worshipers. There's no, no question about that. But to come back to, and this whole thing has gotten me, got my mind going, that this thing that Paul has done or his contact with this guy from Scotland and him bringing it up, and that was, that's been months ago now. He came on with us and he talked about it. He said, I'm holding this in abeyance. He remember, he, they were having a meeting at Nottingham. Do you remember that? Yeah. He came down from Scotland to Nottingham, symbolically, you know, the place where Robin Hood had all his trouble with the sheriff there. And um, that was good. But it got me kind of interested so what i i did what the roger was this i've got this bible translation that is available you know and i'm getting it printed now and of course i want you to have a copy roger i'm still working on that okay but, uh what I, I want to i said now this is this is good because at common law in america still is true um family are currently on the phone assisting other excuse me <laughs> i didn't yeah that was weird that's coming from chris had, on his end huh? oh okay so um I said, um, you know, at common law and still in America, family Bibles are good evidence of live birth. And you can, uh, they have the, the significance of, as a matter of evidence of a birth certificate. They sure do. You yeah. enter them and, right uh, into so court, can't I'm, you? Can't you yeah, enter them right into court? Myself. I'm sorry. Can't sorry. you enter them right into court, the old family Bible with those things oh, recorded? Sure, sure you can. So with my Bible, I'm going to include uh, records of birth, live, I'm going to call it live birth because that's what it is birth, live birth, death, and marriage, and property transfer. Because the reason, fundamentally, that we do have uh, birth certificates, the lawful reason we have them, is for matters of property rights. And property rights are attached to families and live births. And if we don't have that, we can't, we can't, we got to have some evidence that's reliable uh, so that there is not there's not chaos, and that children, for example, don't get property stolen from them that belong to their parents. And there's not anything wrong with that. There's everything good about it. And we keep those records historically. Where I'm from, still in the Midwest, these old courthouses have a room in the center of the courthouse that's encased entirely in steel, the old steel encasement, because fires were a problem, and the that way those records wouldn't be burned up. 
and there are steel doors on a lot of them. You have to walk through the steel doors to go in and look up records, which I've done lots of times. And that's uh, what God wants. He wants us to keep those kind of records. The question right. ultimately is, though, who has the power to keep them and manipulate them, and what do they mean? Mm. As a matter of fact, the whole nation of Israel, when it started, when it started as a nation, came out of Egypt. One of the first things that God did was the order to order the the fashioning of what we today call the Ark of the Covenant, which is the safe box. It's a safe box. And I don't mean a little bit of a safe box, and I'm analogizing this to the safe box in the center of our courthouses in a lot of the counties in America. Uh, that's, that safe box, that Ark, was made of Achaia wood by God's order and overlaid inside and out with gold. And then it was uh, inside of it was put evidences of property rights. Uh, number one, a, a copy of the book of Deuteronomy, which is a land deed, a very extensive land deed, with property description and covenants and the whole bit. Just like we do today, meets and bounds method was put in there. That's evidence of the property that he's giving them. And then there is the, the rod or the, the, the branch, the, the stick that was cut off of a tree that after it was dead, it budded proving that, or evidence that God is the giver of life. He can spontaneously make life. And then also is the pot of manna, which is evidence of, the, of God's provision for people when they had nothing else. God provides everything, and uh, even the food that keeps you alive. So those three evidences were placed, placed in there. And then that was placed in a place called, in English, the Holy of Holies, which is not a comparative, it's a superlative. Couldn't be any more uh, set apart. And here's why. Only one man was allowed to go in there once a year. So that stuff was safe in there. And when he went in there, if he didn't do it just the way God said, God would strike him dead. That's why they tied a rope to his foot when he went in. So if the, God struck him dead, they could drag him out. And then outside of the Holy of Holies was the holy place. And only certain people were allowed in there. And then outside of that was the courtyard of the temple. And only, only certain people were allowed in there. And then all around that, in formation, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, for 40 years, were the separate militias of the 12 tribes of Israel encamped to, uh, separately in certain places. And when that, they stayed there, they flew their banners. So you had six, over 600,000 armed men around this thing. And when that temple got up to move and they packed it up, it got up and those armed men moved in formation with it everywhere it went. Well, it couldn't be any more protected than it was. Well, that's what we do with birth certificates. That's the lawful reason for birth certificates. They have been perverted, uh, no question. I think that's probably true. But the, the way to get out of that is say, okay, you guys have perverted the records we have then we need to have our own records, and I think it's a good idea, and I want to add, I'm adding now to the Bible, uh, the records of live birth for that reason, so people can keep their own records that are good evidence in case of a, a dispute or a court battle. Well, I was particularly encouraged to see that and see it coming from Australia, and one of the reasons is because of our own Brian Howard. I'll probably get a hold of Brian and see if he can join us next Wednesday. We're going to do a show uh -huh. on this next Wednesday. Paul's talking to John. He's already spoken with him and scheduled to speak with him again and get more updated information, and we're going to bring all that out Wednesday. But uh, it shows me, I, I, I see what he had, uh, the, our Aussie buddy, uh, I can't think of his name right off the bat, and 
I kind of have an idea what John's doing up there in Scotland, but we don't know all the latest developments, but I darn sure know what Brian Howard did down in Austin. Okay, and uh, uh, Brian said he was writing up all his findings, and I hadn't spoken with him in a while. Everybody's lives pretty screwed up, and uh, but I did touch base with him on this, and I asked him the other day, "Have you done anything on writing this up?" And he's working on a PowerPoint presentation, so maybe we'll get an update on that. But what encourages me is that we got three different areas. Triangulation is very important, as I come to learn daily, and uh, now we've got a triangulated research deal on. On this birth certificate and some of the things that i've read do you know when the birth certificate because it used to be in the family bibles but historically in the timeline guess when they instituted the birth certificate as we know it today uh, i assume probably about 125 years ago but i don't know for sure about 1921-22 era and if you go back, and I, I, I've really become fond of looking at these different nuggets that you find and sticking them into a timeline, because I know uh -huh. they work on an event line, not a timeline. And you can go back and take the events and see how they work, how they think, and how they set one thing up to be able to accomplish what else is in the agenda. And, of course, in 1913, they took over the Federal Reserve. That gave them uh, enough time to get their hooks into everything and cause the, the very first depression that they caused. People, a lot people don't know about this i know you do brent was in that 21 22 era and evidently one of the purposes of it was to consolidate the federal reserve system because there was still a lot of independent banks especially outside of the east coast that were not in the system and they went in and and caused a, a great financial debacle in the farmers and stuff and repossessed a lot of farmland i think and also were able to put a lot of those banks either a out of business or b drag them into the system but it was in that period of confusion that they instituted the birth certificate as we know it today and obviously they knew that 10 years later that they were going to pull the trigger on the system and the birth certificate was going to be a warehouse receipt and uh, uh the uh, uh the primary uh instrumentation of funding the debt monetary system by using it as collateral uh-huh well, no, I, I I realize what they've tried to do. They're they're just they're just a bunch of scum, oh. deceit, deceitful scum. What else is there to say? I have a family member. I don't want to mention her name because she might not want me to. But she was born in 1920 in the Panhandle of Nebraska, where her father had homesteaded. And uh, Nebraska wasn't settled. Wyoming wasn't settled really until the until the depression a lot of swedes came in there people from scandinavia and other places but uh she was born didn't have a certificate and then in the 19 uh, almost 1980 she wanted to go with her husband on a trip overseas and uh she went to get a passport and couldn't get one she couldn't prove that she was born you know and uh eventually she was able to find an old fella back in that little tattle out in the middle of nowhere, remembered her mother giving birth to her. And she got an affidavit from him, and she was able to get a passport. But I that goes along with what you said about birth certificates. But I've known a lot of people in my life, uh, some of them still alive, that didn't have birth certificates. And as far as I know, they still don't, but they had never had a need to have one. If they didn't need a passport, who would even ask a question? I had two neighbors, Leon and well, I won't say their first names or last names were McNerland. 
uh, one of the boys didn't even have a name. His parents just called him boy all his life. <laughs> my granddad was there. I think I told this. My granddad was the, the school teacher. That little one-room schoolhouse there, and and the boys came to school in first grade, and uh, Grandpa went around, got everybody's names, you know. And, what's your name? Well, my name is Leon. He said, well, what's your brother's name? He said, of course, he knew the family. He just didn't know, know him that, didn't know the name. He said, well, my name Boy. He said, oh, one got a name. And Leon said, no, no. He said, uh, that's what we call him. We call him Boy. Brent, your, your, audio, your audio characteristics well, changed there on us. You went hollow. Uh, did you mess with your mic or whatever? Because, you know, everybody wants to hear what you got to add here, and I want to make sure it's as clear as possible on our fidelity. So, uh, I didn't know if you were aware of that, but I had noticed a change in your fidelity there. Well, I'm yeah, there. You go. The, let me, yeah, let me try it again. Or, or did you want to say something, Roger? No, no, I just wanted to see if I could get you back on oh, the fullness of the good yeah, fidelity thanks. there. Maybe I lowered the mic, but um, my granddad said, Well, we'll just call you Lester. Your brother's named Leon, they were unidentical twins, and uh, that stuck. His name was Lester the rest of his life because he didn't want to call him boy. But uh, they, they were family friends, the whole family still are, wonderful people, hard-working people. And uh, we just love them to death. I still do. But um, they, they were, as far as I know, Lester never did get a birth certificate and didn't have any reason to, I don't suppose. I mean, uh, there are a lot of other people I knew. So that goes along with your, um, your testimony about when birth certificates were uh, beginning to be demanded. But uh, I know that by the time I came along, they were pretty routine. Back to you, Roger. Uh, and, and that is, I, if I can remember, it's the only occasion that I ever had to go get one was was passport applications. Uh, and uh -huh. I've got my originals back in the closet. I need to dig them out and start looking at it a little more closely. Uh, I had a very interesting experience in Argentina because I had been down there a year, and then they, this uh, this monster from within our ranks stole mine. Okay, and uh -huh. I it it gave me a lot of problems because for one thing is you can't go get money in a foreign country without a passport. All right. Oh, and 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 I had had that accident and I needed some cash and uh, I couldn't go get it and I couldn't ask the Argentinians to go get it because that tied into Western Union and now their IRS is all over them. Who's sending you money? And, and so uh, I had that little hurdle. Fortunately, I found a, an American Argentinian who had a U.S. passport and went and took care of that for me. But then at that point, uh, I was close to 62 and uh, could get on Social Security and not have to sell gold to live, which was very appealing to me, obviously. And uh, I had to go get a passport through the embassy. When you apply for a passport in a foreign country or Social Security or anything else, you have to go through the, you have to go through the embassy in that country. And so I contacted the passport office down there. I'd only had the other one maybe two years, all right? And... Uh, and the gal's going, well, uh, well, you have to have an do you have an original copy of your birth certificate? I said, sure, I bring, I, I take that with me everywhere, don't you? Okay. Yeah. And obviously, I had it back in the states, and and they go, well, well, we can't, we can't issue you one without that. And I, and it was during the Obama birthing years, and I, and I said, oh, yeah. you mean Obama doesn't have to have one, and I do? You've got it in the you records. Yeah, absolutely. I said, um, you've got it in your records up there. It's within the last two years. And then she lied to yeah. me, 
Then she lied to okay. me and said, oh, we destroy that stuff. They can't destroy what's in your administrative file. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, they go, well, the, the, the solution here was she said, well, what we can do is issue you a temporary one. You got to pay the fee and everything, and it's good for a year. And if you turn it in within that year, we'll issue you another ten-year one, and and you won't have to pay the fee, which I ended up doing. But, uh, but that was an interesting incident to me because then I had to get. Well, I had a year now to get the uh, an original down, and and I went through, I, and I've still got them. I had three copies. So, uh, but anyway, that I said you won't accept a JPEG. You know, my brother had them. And, and, she, and he could just take a picture, and there it is right there. Nope, nope, got to have the original. That's what I said. You mean Obama doesn't have to have one, and yeah. I do? <laughs> yeah. Well, the president's a privilege that way, you know. Yeah, well, he can have uh, 10 they, social security they, they numbers. They people in now to run for president. You know? yes. Well, he can have 10 different social security numbers, too. <laughs> Dang, it, unbelievable. You know, when they wrote the Constitution, they wanted to get rid of that idea because they had a king in England who was a German boy. Well, George the Third, George the Second, and George the First. Those were the three kings. That uh, George the First and George the Second were born in Germany. They were Germans. Yeah, they weren't English. And then George the Third, by happenstance, was born in England. But still, the whole idea was of our. We set our country up. We said we don't want foreigners coming here run our country. We want somebody that's lived lived here, born here. You know all that. You know George Washington wasn't was not an American citizen at his birth. He wasn't natural born. He was a British citizen. But they said uh, after after we get, I think, and no, there was one after Andy Jackson that was born in the in the British Empire, because America was the British Empire. But then at that now. The, the, the requirement is you got to be a natural-born citizen, but I don't want to get off on that, uh, Roger. I apologize. Well, that, you got to finish your story. That's okay. I, I want to add one salient point here. I remember reading years ago that that German influence from King George III was so strong in our country that when they decided on a language, it was only by one vote that they spoke English. In in uh, in, uh, in the U.S. In our country? Yes. Oh, in the U.S. Uh, when were when were the German when did was that? Well, back before you know, as the country was being founded, the influence of that oh. Germanic uh, influence on the King of England because it's exactly like you said, his whole lineage was German. That Haps oh, was yeah. it a Habsburg, a Habsburg yeah, yeah, lineage. Yeah. Well, you know the reason that here, but this is how strong Protestantism was in England. The only reason that those fellows were king was because they were protestants they and if they had to they had to go to another country to have a protestant king they'd do it they did it with william and mary they did they had one thing they didn't want they didn't care anything else they don't want no roman catholics sitting on the throne and that's still the law in england there's only one non-negotiable requirement to hold the crown and that says you've got to be a protestant and whether or not they'll continue to follow it's another question but that's and there's good reason for it i mean the the Roman Catholics have been trying to blow that country up for years. They still have a big celebration there about the Roman Catholics that tried to blow the country up. And they're going to blow that blasted Scottish king back to Scotland, they said. And they put all the, about 30-some barrels of gunpowder under the parliamentary building. And they caught Guy Fawkes down there with a lit cigar in his hand and a fuse in the other hand, getting ready to touch the whole caboodle off. Now, that's just one example of what the Romanists were trying to do in England, and so they have a very bad, they've always had a bad taste in their mouth for those guys, and understandably so. But uh, that's why, uh, yeah, that's why uh, George was on the throne, because he was Protestant. That, that's true. But I didn't realize, of course, the, the German influence in America was mostly in Pennsylvania, and uh, there was a lot of Dutch. Did you lose me, Roger? No, no you're here. You're there. 
oh golly, I plugged my thing in. A lot of Dutch influence, and I and they were powerful politically in Pennsylvania. Um, and I assume that's why that happened. I didn't know that. I'd never heard that. Roger, I'll have to look it up. Now, where where you are right now with your microphone is the sweet spot. Okay. Oh, okay. I'll I'll stand. I'll continue to stand on my head then. <laughs> yeah, please do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I told thing. the audience I gave the uh, title of this video if they want to go search it up before I can get the show posted today and everything. But I'm going to put it in the show notes because. I want to go back and watch it, watch it at least one more time. There's a lot of information in there that was new to me. And, of course, he centered on the bank. Everything was the bank, the bank, the bank. And he didn't say anything about the fact that they can make man-made laws and attach them to you now, too, in this new status. And, uh, and the other thing that I really gr got out of it very clearly. Chris, are you ordering it at Burger King or something? Sorry, I bumped my mute Okay. Uh, and the other thing that was particularly interesting to me was it's obvious he's got his hands around the voluntary aspect of this, but he didn't have any idea of the imputation of the feudal system on us and the aspect of that voluntary servitude in the background of it. So that's one thing we've got in our corner here that uh, it gives incredible illumination and incredible understanding and a, and a complete picture of it. You know, Brent, a number of years ago, I was reading an excerpt from Carol Quigley's book, Tragedy and Hope. And, uh, of course, Carol Quigley was one of them. He was a Georgetown professor and uh, was allowed into the Council on Foreign Relations for two years with free reign through their archives. And uh, he, he was in favor of what they're doing, but he just thought they ought to make it public. And uh, instead of being so under the covers and, and, and tricky and deceptive and all the things they are. But in one of the excerpts it read, he said the, the system is set up through interlocking financial institutions in a feudal manner. Okay. Uh -huh. uh, that's coming right from Carol Quigley now. And I don't know if you can have a feud without serfs, can you? Well, no, you, you can't. I agree with you. The feudal system, obviously, what came came to England, and our founders, our founders, and I don't like to say our founders. Those guys, those are the people that we call our founders, were just political hacks, following the people of the United States, um, as all politicians are. You can't, but not not to take that away because that's a necessary part of the way things happen. I'm not so sure that they felt, but three million Americans felt that way at the beginning. And what they wanted to get away from was the whole idea of feudalism, because they recognized clearly that after 1066, that's the key point, that feudalism came into the Anglo-Saxon, what they called the Anglo-Saxon system. Some people in those days called it the Anglo-Dane system because the Danish Vikings had invaded a few centuries before and had mixed their blood with everybody else and had actually very much strengthened the common law tradition that Romans, the Romans back during their occupation had weakened. And then when, when, um, when William came in 1066, he weakened it again because he was a Norwegian, as, and all of his people had settled on the coast of France, and by their settlement there, they had received the imprint of Rome. The one thing that they did bring to our common law tradition that it didn't have before was a bit of precision. And Romanism and Babylonianism, just like the Nazis got into that, precision's the big thing. We're going to have a law that doesn't allow any 
everything's going to be perfect. We'll have one man in charge or one will uh, from one group of men, like a legislative body, and everybody's got to do what the government says. That way there'll be perfect order. Well, that's the precision. Well, he brought some of that, but he applied it without really understanding what he was doing. He applied it to our common law. And so we have at common law a little more order than we had before. But what we in America tried to do is to return back before 1066 and establish a common law tradition it was already here, but just kind of get rid of some of the, the things that were impeding it and make it cleaner and uh, not have uh, all of the administrative and Romanism law. One of the things that stuck with us in our common law system that people are really upset about, and rightly so, is feud, uh, the vestiges of feudalism. And that comes from the law of property. The law of property at common law is, uh, is a historic ac- and historic accident. And it happened because of feudalism. The reason, for example, we're paying land taxes is because of that. Fundamentally, that's it hasn't yep. changed. Yep. And um, yeah, now we did get rid of the idea here in America that they still have in England to some degree, although they've gotten rid of a lot of it. The idea that uh, every piece of property can be owned by more than one person. In other words, in England, when he, William got there, the king owned the whole country. And he parceled out uh, his what he owned, what he said he owned, he parceled out the land to about 600 of his chief followers. And then they, in turn, he just said to them, look, you can have all the profits off this land as long as you provide me with X number of knights per year uh, armed and trained for battle. 40 days a year. It was called the knight's fee. That was the tax. The tax was um, uh, to produce uh, military men, uh, knights especially, on, on horseback. And the people, of course, did that. Of course, and to do that, then, those people, they parceled the land out further. Rented, we would say, maybe. Leased. leased. I said, okay, you, at least you got to provide this, you got to provide... And then, and those people had the right to parcel it out. And theoretically, you could parcel land out to, to one square inch, just keep going down. And so every piece of land in England was owned by the king and then everybody under him, depending upon where you were. Well, we have... We got rid of that, pretty much. That whole idea of... But we did not get rid of the idea that we can we can divide title to property. We do things in America that other countries don't do. Uh, where I come from, you can go into the land or the where the property records are kept in the center of the courthouse in that big steel room I'm talking about, and you can see that some people don't. They have the timber rights. Other people have the surface rights. Other people have the mineral rights. Other people have the oil rights. Other people have the gas rights. You can divide land up as much as you want in America, uh, the rights to it. As a matter of fact, we say in American law of property, that land, just like all other pieces of property, is a really what you get with it is a bundle of rights. Maybe yeah. one right, maybe more than one. It's right. a bundle. But you, the land itself, the, the, the different things about it can be divided up. That came from feudalism. But it has served us well. And we can do things in America that, why, why, in America, we can produce oil like nobody ever produced it because of that. So we don't have the feudalism they had in the same way, but we have retained also somehow this thing about taxation. Go ahead, Roger. A couple of things, and I queried Paul about this, and it's just fascinating to me, this old history stuff, because it answers so much and uh, of questions that you either knew you had or you didn't know you had. But depending on how you held that king from the land, in, in what line of directness is was your title. And so all the titles that went in England, if they called you a duke or an earl or a lord, it, that was a, an absolute, everybody 
everybody understood that you held your land directly from the king or directly from the lord or directly from the duke or the earl or all those different uh, uh, titles of nobility, I guess you'd call them. The other thing I wanted to say, and you and I have discussed this before, when I moved to Argentina, I was absolutely shocked because no mineral rights of any land in the entire country are owned by people. They're all owned by the Argentine government. You can yep. get on the land, and they can come in if they yep. found oil underneath you, and you'll get a little bit of yep. a piece of a royalty, but, buddy, the lion's share is theirs. And they will never have wealth in that country like nope. we have and, because of that. That's the big difference. Well, there's a, there, you know, life is yin and yang, okay? And because of that, that whole area has not been to exploited for that reason. I think I told you when I first got down there, there was a, there's a lot of Anglo, they call them Anglo Argentinians. Uh, a bunch of them are from building the railroads and their families got land, I guess, and stayed and their, uh, progenity still there. And one of the guys was an engineer. He was, uh, uh, and he dealt with the mines and we were at, at a, at a, a social gathering there. And I was particularly interested in all that. And so we had a nice conversation. He could, he could quote chapter and verse. He knew every mine in the whole Andes. And, and he knew what uh-huh. they mined, how much they got per ton, this, that, and the other, because he sold them all the dynamite and stuff, okay? Yeah. And he said to me, and this is about 10 years ago, he said only 17% of the Andes have been explored on the Argentine side. Well, I'd be surprised at that much, but well, they probably got the record to say it. Yeah, no. I, I'm telling you, there's no, there's no, there's no incentive, Roger. No, I'm there's no, here. there's no incentive, no. and 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 therefore there's no over corporate. There's no the corporations have come in and polluted everything to the most part and all that stuff. But uh, uh, uh-huh. I'm gonna tell you one thing: Argentina's loaded with natural resources, absolutely oh, loaded. And we haven't touched them. It has to be true. It's true. It's true. Even in the lower 48 people, they go, Oh, we were all tapped. We're all tapped out. And we're, we haven't even begun. I, I just came through, uh, Carlin, uh, Nevada, not long ago. And those, um, th- there's more gold been produced on that Carlin trend than the last uh, 40 years by far and away, no comparison than all of the gold ever produced in the United States in our entire history. Wow. Yet, and the way things work now, nobody knows about it. Those, they're opening mines, opening mines, opening mines. They're following that trend. They're digging pits. They're underground mines. They're, uh, they're going like gangbusters there. Uh, same thing is true in other places in Nevada. But you were talking about owning land direct under the king. At common law, they call that, uh, it, it, you are, uh, if you do that, you're immediate to the king. Right. Well, that's saying something. Yeah, then you say, oh, he's really something. He's immediate to the king. And by the way, then uh, folks have heard of um, the allodial title. Under that system of William I, which has persisted in England to varying degrees, uh, only the king has a lodial title. Why? Because the lodial title is title uh, that a fellow holds without holding responsibility to anybody else under that title. Uh, Only the king had a lodial title. Everything came up to him. That word lodial is a Scandinavian word, by the way. A lodial. A lodial, and it's an old word, and it came with the Normans. Remember, William I was, even though he conquered the coast of France and called it Normandy from his native home, Norway, the the North Country, um, that's a Scandinavian word among the Swedes, the Anglo-Saxons, the Danes, all uh, related tribes. And a lodial to them was to own land without owing anybody anything for, for the privilege or for, for the right. In other words, uh, you're not paying rent on it. You're not paying a fee. You're not having to pay homage. You know, there's some people that held land in England and their only job to hold the land 
was to, for example, uh, say a prayer for the king every day or say every month at a certain time. Or there were other people that held title to land because of a duty they had to the king to carry a certain piece of his armor when he went into battle. All of anything. The king could make it any service he wanted, but that was the rent. And if you didn't pay it, then you didn't have rights to that land anymore. And the reason he did that, William I, he was a good administrator and as part of the feudal system, but the whole thing was designed to enable national defense. That's what it was all about. And eventually then, by the, by the 1300s, uh, the uh, knight's fee, the payment of taxes on land by military men, by providing trained military men, uh, the option was given to pay gold or silver. And, and, and was not that the origin of the Knights of the Round Table that is so prolific in lore? Now, what I understand, Roger, I haven't given my life to the study of it, but I understand the Knights of the Round Table was uh, first arose to prominence uh, with uh, King Arthur, who was a Celtic king before or, or, or during the Roman occupation back before between four and five hundred A.D., and uh, he was probably a, from all indications, a, a Roman um, uh, militia officer. In other words, he was Celtic, and there were a lot. They organized. A, militia of the Celts, the Romans did while they were there, to get deal with insurrections and invasions. And he was probably a militia officer, but then he ended up uh, rebelling against the Romans, and he probably, and he did a good job, but he fought them hard, they couldn't deal with him, and um, he probably delayed uh, delayed the Roman, uh, the further Roman occupation, or rather, he delayed, I'm sorry, he delayed the Viking occupation of the Danes for about 50 years. Or no, I'm sorry, I'm getting my folks mixed. Let me say it one more time. He delayed the Anglo-Saxon invasion by about 50 years. Uh-huh. But he didn't stop it. The Anglo-Saxon invasion was so overwhelming, as was the Danish invasion after that. All, they just kept coming, you know. And the Danes or the Vikings, contrary to popular belief, the Vikings were not the Norwegians, they were not the Swedes, they were not the Anglo-Saxons. Not to say that those folks were not just as piratical and just as nasty and did all the same things, but they weren't, strictly speaking, by the name Viking. The Vikings were the Danes. And uh, they were all, as William Blackstone says in his commentaries, though they were all uh, piratical peoples, piratical. That means they like to get on ships and uh, rape, plunder, pillage, and burn. That's what they like to do. And uh, finally they discovered, the Danes were the ones that finally discovered, okay, they came back every year and they raped, robbed, pillaged, and burned. They came back, and every time they came back, they had to go further inland to find somebody to do that to, because they just kept, you know, wiping people out. So they finally came to the conclusion, hey, if we don't kill these people, we can continue to trade with them. And uh, them being seafaring people, they became the wool traders in England, and uh, their descendants became the wool traders and opened up the wool markets once they settled in England, the, the Vikings, the Danes. They kind of calmed down, and they began to uh, keep the wool moving from England, and that made England wealthy. Uh, even yet today, I, I'm, I believe, I should go look this up, but I think that the cushion on the chair on which Queen Elizabeth sits when she opens Parliament, because she's a component of Parliament, she lends her sovereignty to Parliament every time they go into session, because they have none otherwise. They become sovereign by her act. She sits down on that cushion, and that cushion is called the wool cushion because the wool traders of England made that and gave it to the crown years ago just to, re to remind the crown by the feeling on their bottoms that uh, wool 
is what made England wealthy. And, and it really, it, it, wool was about their primarily, primary trading good. Oh, yeah. Wool uh, was king like cotton was king here. Yeah, uh -huh. that's right. And, and that led up to, from the time frame you're talking about, the problems with them screwing the traders and having their buddies come into court and lie for them, and the trader didn't get his profit and said, well, I'm not coming back there. And that uh -huh. led to the Statute de Mercantoribus in 1285, I think, which uh -huh. was the beginning of the statute staple towns and bringing, as Jewish, uh, Jewish Judith Shapiro talks about, I should plug it over on my website again, uh -huh. uh, the, uh -huh. uh, uh, the, staple, uh, the staple towns and the invasion of the Jewish Shetar into the English uh -huh. common law. Uh, you can read about that over on SovereignToSurf.com. There is a very scholarly tome. By uh, it was published in the Georgetown Law, Law Review, I think, back in the 1970s, um, by Judith Shapiro, and she gives a very detailed and, and quite good history of this. I think the thing is is titled "How the Jewish Shetar Invaded the English Common Law," and uh, and you can get to the end of that and nowhere in there. Hold on, Chris. Uh, it's not really Jewish, they call Chris. Themselves Jews. Chris. Okay, so they're fine. Well, hold on a second. All right. And uh, he, you, uh, the mute obviously came off again. But uh, uh, the one thing that Judith Shapiro neglects to tell you is that a Shetar is a 1040 form. Uh huh. Yeah, no, either way I understand it, Roger. The Shetar, Shetar is a Hebrew word. You can find it in the Old Testament. But what it has to do with a certain kind of uh, piece of paper that is record of a debt or a, they, that everybody signed, they claim it's a debt, and they were kept in the exchequer in a certain chest that was back during the times you were talking about, during the times after, after um, around Magna Carta, the, time, the 1200s and 1300s. And there were a set of chests in which these, they were rolled up, a string was tied around them, and they were put in these. And what they were was um, evidences of debt from the crown to the Jewish moneylenders, and they called them shatars. And the Jewish moneylenders, and I don't know after the time of, uh, of, uh, of uh, John Lackland, he was the king that signed um, Magna Carta, but I have looked, and during that time, the interest rates of the Jewish moneylenders to the crown and anybody else in England ranged from about 43.5% to 80, 82 and a third is what I remember. That's annually. Annually, so that was a that was a powerful amount of interest. Of course, that all fell on the backs of the landholders. The king didn't pay it; he just got. That's what. That's why Magna Carta occurred, by the way. And I'm I'm telling you when I say these things, what's in Magna Carta? I'm not. I'm fleshing out the, what Magna Carta says about the Jewish moneylenders. It's all there. It's not like I'm making this up or it's not right in the document. It's there. Of course, the uh, money lending on interest. Of course, it's not lending the money at all. It's money given, title is given, so it may be spent. But uh, that word lending is meant to divert our attention from what's really going on. But uh, what went on there was uh, the, uh, it was against the law because the Bible says it's against the law to lend money, not to give money, <laughs> with a surcharge, to give any consumable item to another person, whether it be food or money, and those are the most prominent consumable items. That's not rent. That's not lending. That's transferring title so that you can transfer title to something else, somebody else, or, for example, you eat the food. 
there was a fellow, uh, um, the lieutenant governor of the uh, Puritan colony in New England, back before we became a country. I forget which one. Oh, I think it was at the very first, now that I'm thinking. I read the case. Lieutenant governor, uh, uh, he, um, he, he gave, I say loan. See, I even used the wrong word. He gave 10 bushels of corn to another fella under a contract that this other fella would give him 12 bushels back at the next harvest. And the reason he did it, because this fella needed something to eat. And so um, th that's called usury, by the way. To um, require a surcharge of like value, to require like value of, of an item given, a consumable item given, with a surcharge on top is what the Bible calls usury. Not everything you give to another person to use is usury. I can, I rent a car, that's not usury, because I'm not renting the car to consume it or sell it. But when you take money from the bank, the bank transfers title to you under a contract that you'll give them something back just as valuable plus more. That's why they come and take your house. If you have a house loan, you don't give them what the contract says. They don't take money. They don't take the same money. You've already spent that money. You transferred it to somebody else, title and all, because you had title to it. And by the way, it goes the other way, Roger. When you put money in the bank, it's no longer yours. They have title to it Correct. in their contract. That's banking. It goes both ways. If that one point could be got across the people, that with banking, all the rules are off. When you give money to the bank, it becomes theirs under a contract. When they give money to you, they call it a loan. It isn't. It's theirs under a contract. Well, anyway, this lieutenant governor was prosecuted for the crime of usury. And um, in England, because in England, usury was against the law. So they let the Jews do it because um, the Jews had no protection under the law in England. The common law did not protect people that weren't Christian. So they had no protection. The only protection that the Jewish man had in England in those days was to have lots of money and give as, uh, as many loans to the king as, he, as the king wanted or anybody else. That way, especially the king, though, he would have protection if he could give money um, to a powerful person. But he did it at, uh, at most exorbitant rates. And, of course, the threat that they had was, look, if you don't pay us the interest we want, we know you need the money, we know we got it. If you don't give us what we want, we're just leaving, and then there'll be no money. So, <laughs> so the kings were in debt to the, which meant that the whole country was in debt to them. But at the time of Magna Carta, that was one problem. The second problem was King John had done the same thing. He had, he had, um, he had uh, promised the the uh, Islamic Sultan of Morocco that he would um, pay him interest surcharge on money given to him, so he could dominate the landowners in England. He'd done that. He'd done it with the Jews. He did it with the Islamic Arabs. And then he promised the whole country, land and all, kit and caboodle, top to bottom, to the Pope of Rome. It would be his personal fiefdom if he would but do uh, what the Pope said and uh, the Pope would loan him money. He wanted money, money, money. And he had three sources, the Pope of Rome, the Islamic Sultan of Morocco, and the Jewish moneylenders in his own country. And the landholders, when they, you know, they would put up with the Jewish moneylenders. They would, they, they would even put up with uh, the Sultan, uh, unbelievably, the Islamic Sultan of Morocco. John promised the Islamic Sultan of Morocco that he would make all of England Islamic if he would give him the money he needed on a surcharge, usury, to fight. Well, that was bad. But when finally, when they realized that he had promised the whole country to the Pope, that was the one thing they couldn't deal with. And they said, we're going to war. And they, that's kind of funny. You know, as, as it says, our Declaration of 76 says, all experience shows that men are patient. They will tolerate the intolerable for the longest periods of time. But there comes a point 
where there's a straw that breaks the camel's back. And him making that kind of a deal he'd made with the Jews and the Islamic <laughs> Sultan of Morocco, that we, we can't deal with that. So they assembled an army. They cornered him on a low island on the Thames River called a low island, so they called it a plain, and they called it Runny Mead, Plain of Runny Mead. You know, mead is a, is a, a an alcoholic beverage. Yeah, it's a drink. England. Right. Yeah, made out of honey, made out of honey. Well, it was called Runny Mead, and mead is that drink, and uh, it was named after it. And they cornered him there, and at the points of swords, they said, you have a choice. People say King John didn't have a choice. Of course he had a choice. He could either died, fought and died, or signed. He chose to sign. There have been hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in the world, Roger, who have chosen to die rather than do what they were told to do. So don't tell me that John didn't have a choice. Of course he did. Honor would, if he had honor, he thought he was right, he would have demanded a fight. But he didn't. He signed. And because he signed, he bound all of the crown for all time in England and all the progeny that arose, arises out of the common law of England, including all the English-speaking world, to those first principles. And they had a lot to say about the moneylenders in Magna Carta. That's my only point. I said a lot to say it. But just to understand some simple things, that's what happened in the shatars, as you said. Those, that's a Hebrew word the Jews required that if the king was, they're going to give him money to consume and then give back like value with a surcharge, then they were going to have this thing signed called a shatar, which is as you say, it's like a 1040. It's a it's an agreement under oath that you're going to do a certain thing. That's right. We went we went into that quite a bit in John's teachings, and uh, it, under the UCC, I believe it's under specialty contracts, and there's two criteria that make it a shatar, and one is that it's signed under seal. That's your penalty of perjury. That's why if you send right. in a, a a ten forty form that's not signed, they'll send it back to you. Okay. That's right. That's uh, the and they call it the jurat. The that's jurat right. The, the jurat. And right. there's two of them in in the United States code. One within the United States. One without the United States. I think it's Title eighteen. Okay. Uh, somewhere there in Title eighteen. But the other requirement for it to be a shetar is it's got to have a recognizance. Okay. And a recognizance is a clause in the contract that refers to another group of laws. And so when you sign a 1040 form, you've got to sign it under penalty of perjury. And the, and the recognizance is that you'll abide by all the, all the conditions under Title 26 CFR. Now, Roger, stop right there. I want to make a comment. That's really important, what you said. In this sense, thinking back on the Shatar, uh, the Jewish people in England at that time, had no protection from any law. You could make a deal with a Jewish fella and the courts would not enforce it. That's what I'm saying. And they did that. And the only way they retained their power or their, their protection was through their having lots of money. And that's still the culture uh, generally among them. But um, that being true, Roger, if the law did not protect them in their contracts, there, there had to be a reference in the Shatar to another body of law, right. as you just said. Because the common law wouldn't work for them. They had to have a commitment. Uh, but that's pretty thin. Because even though the, the king, for example, would make a commitment to them under another law, that law didn't apply. The king in England, as, as a matter of law, is bound by law, unlike other countries, uh, where there's an emperor. Call him what you want. The king in England was bound by law, and he purported then to submit himself to another law 
that's not even legally possible, although they may have acted like it was. And that's why the men of England got upset and Magna Carta was ultimately forced upon the king because they said, our common law governs England. The Pope of Rome does not govern England. And the man that drafted Magna Carta, Stephen Langton, is the man that gave us our chapter divisions in our Bibles that we use yet today. He was foremost, the foremost Old Testament, not New Testament necessarily, but he was the foremost Old Testament scholar of his day. He was Archbishop of Canterbury, and he drafts in the beginning of Magna Carta, and at the end he says the same phrase to open and close. The Church of England shall be forever free. What does that mean? That means free from foreign power. Namely, who? The Pope of Rome. And that's why when the Pope of Rome read Magna Carta, he wrote it in Latin so that the Pope could read it and all the educated world could read it, all the priests. When the Pope of Rome had it read to him, I should say, and I'm saying this on the testimony of a man that was there and saw what happened, the Pope of Rome blew a proverbial head gasket because the, the Englishmen were saying by, by that document, Rome does not control us. We control ourselves and our church is separate from Rome. Now, did that actually happen at that time? No, it didn't. But it was a bold statement that set a precedent that we have been trying to approximate ever since. And when John Wycliffe came along in the next century and translated the whole Bible into English for the first time, he was a Roman priest, by the way, he followed up on that precedent of Magna Carta. That's what he was doing when he translated the Bible. And he was saying the Pope of Rome has no control in our country. He addressed Parliament by their invitation, and he advised them. They wanted to know what he would say because he was thought so much of as a man that understood the law. He advised them, do not allow anyone to travel or be taken from this realm to a foreign tribunal to be tried. And so they passed a law at that time that says uh, no man can be taken uh, beyond seas, uh, namely to Rome, to be tried for anything without, they did, they put this in there, without permission of Parliament. That was monumental to bring the common law power back and the separation of powers for Parliament to assert themselves that way and say, no, not the king. We got powers too. And it wasn't anything new, nothing they had not thought of. They knew that before William had invaded, that's the way it used to be in England. There wasn't what they didn't call it the Parliament then. That's a French word because the Normans, when they came, they brought the French language and took over the courts. But it wasn't called the Parliament, where you parlayed. It was called, under before the invasion, it was called the Witten Gamot. Witten Gamot, Witten means white, white-headed, white-bearded. That's what that word means. And Gamot means meeting. And Witten Gamot was a meeting of the elders, a meeting of the white-headed men. That And they were that was the, the Parliament. It became to be called the Parliament. Same thing. The King of England couldn't do anything. Without their advice, these were the very free. I have a doc, copies of documents during the in the um, ninth century that say exactly this: the advice and consent of the Wittenagemot. And that phrase now is part of our constitution because we reached back and took from pre-Norman England, the, as the Anglo as the Anglo-Saxon common law stood then. And we took, lifted those phrases and put them in our United States Constitution because that's what we were doing. We were cleaning up the old common law tradition. We had it in place. We were just making it tighter. So now, as a matter of law, I know we don't practice it, but as a matter of law, the chief executive, the president of the United States, not much he can't do, it says, without the advice and the consent 
of the senile old man, <laughs> or the senile old men. And the senile old men, that's funny, but it's true. This word senate is from the same root that means senile. It has to do with being the old white-headed men. That's wow. the Wittengemot. That's the Parliament. That's the House of Lords. He can't do anything without their consent. That's the way it's supposed to be. And we have established that in our own country to bring Check. it all the way back around. The checks and balances. Uh, also, oh, no uh, question, yeah. one unique Go thing. The one Go unique thing, the other aspect of the Shetar, is that uh -huh. once you're under one, you're turned into property. And well, Roger, they. You've you, they can seize anything that comes into your hands to satisfy the debt. And but that's, here's the, oh, I'm sorry. Well, that's okay. I know you I, I see I'm connecting dots in my head as you're talking about things I hadn't done before. So I'm going to try to okay, just, let you go on. Well, done. just refrain for a second. And I'll turn it back over yeah, to you. Yeah. Uh, so what really brought this to me was the other night I'm dealing with a, a guy down here about uh, IRS stuff and the affidavit, and he goes, well, all they got is a lien on my house up there, and that's going to expire in seven years <laughs> or whatever yeah. the, the time left. And I wrote him back and said, well, uh, he came. He was a, a member of the Save a Patriot Foundation, which all all the you know the death of a thousand cuts. Okay, but they never wow. they've never had it. All right, they've never gotten their arms around what's really going on. And so I wrote him back. I said, "Well, uh, the uh, the lien's not on your apartment. First of all, it's a notice of lien that's recorded in the property uh, 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 records. But the real lien somewhere in the bowels of the Treasury Department, and uh, uh -huh. it, it arises from a statute staple contract, and it's not on your house, buddy. It's on your body." And even though you're in Ecuador, if they can get their hands on anything that comes into your possessions, they're going to grab it. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. Go go read the Talmud. You'll find out if you're not uh, a, a, a votary of the Jewish Talmudism. Just read the Talmud. I I'm, I say this on good authority. I can't. You're I, nothing. You're I nothing can't. but it, an animal. It makes me sick a, to read it. You're a brute beast, and so you're good for nothing. As Peter Peter the Apostle references this in his epistle. The Apostle Peter, brute beast, good for nothing but to be caught and killed, quoting Galen, Galen, the Greek physician. Well, let me get back to something. Uh, to connecting dots, Roger, as you were talking, the things were just popping up in my brain. I was having a hard time restraining myself. I wanted to say it before I forgot it, but I knew you were you needed to finish what you were saying, and that's where I'm getting the ideas. But coming back to the shatar, uh, the, um, there is no law that allows you to do that in America. Matter of fact, the law in America, at common law, you do not have the lawful power or the authority. And it's always been this way at common law. If your feet are on free soil, that's our common law doctrine, the free soil doctrine, which applies in America. No matter how, how many times you sign yourself away into slavery, it never happened as a matter of law. You can't do it. And you can't do it because God said you can't do it. And the reason he said that is he, he said, you are my slave. That's what God says. You are mine. I made you. You are my servant. You know, people, and so you can't sell yourself away from me. That's not even possible. People talk about the New Testament word doulos, doulos. And it's used a lot in the New Testament, and it's almost always translated slave, or, or rather servant. For example, it'll open Jude in his epistle. Jude opens the next to the last book of the Bible. He says, Jude a servant of Jesus Christ. Well, that's not what the word is. The word is doulos. They're just trying to make it a euphemism, make it sound nice. It's not servant. It's slave. 
if you are a Christian, you are a slave of Jesus Christ, and he takes absolute, absolute responsibility for you. Well, you say, well, Brent, I don't believe that. Well, I, I'm not here to tell you what to believe, and I'm not here to even try to persuade you into it. I'm here to tell you what the book says. That's what the book says. I've not read a scholar of Greek, and, a, and I've not read a meaning of that word in any other context that it can mean anything but slave. And that's exactly what um, the, those that have spent their lives studying these words, the etymology of these words, say. And that's the way the word is used. You only have two choices in life. And when um, that, that old rock and that folk singer, uh, Bob Dylan, you know, he feigned conversion to Christianity back in 1978. And he sang a song, and the name of the song was uh, You Got to Serve Somebody. Yeah, right. You, you Got to Serve. You remember that? Well, yeah. his point was, and he, he had this part right, even though he was baloney about his Christianity. He, he said, you either got to serve your maker or you're going to serve the devil. And that's fact. You don't have any other choices. There's no neutrality. There's no hesitating between. You're either doing one or the other at any given yep. point. And, if, and so it comes down to who do you want to be your master? And if you don't make the right choice, you're nothing but a slave to an evil, low, scummy, vicious murderous, S-O-B, son of Belial, and all of his useful idiots. So here's your choice. God's law says, no, I made you, son. You don't have the right nor the power to, to give yourself over to somebody else. But the evil empire comes along and says, well, no, no, sign this shatar. That, that'll get you over. And Roger, you make the point. You make the point that it's nothing more. It can be nothing more than a puny presumption. That's all you're saying. And that I see that clearly because there is no law. There is no law that even allows such an evil. They're running this so, whole deal on presumption of law and shifting it. The whole deal's run but, on that right there. But that presumption maybe is nothing. Go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. It may be legal, but it ain't lawful. Yeah, there you go. It's just like you know, in in uh, Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars, there in the back, it says, "What we do may not be lawful, but it will always be legal." Well, so God says, and you can see this throughout his expression of his will, which we call his law. He says, don't make any deals. Well, let me put it in the vernacular. Don't make any deals with the devil. Well, that, makes, don't, that means don't make any deals with his useful idiots. That means no shatars. That's what that means. Yeah. Don't do that. Uh, because if you do that, then they'll start screaming and hollering that they've got some legal right over you. It's not true. And they'll say, no, well, I, yeah, but it's presumption, and you, you've not rebutted the presumption. That's really what you're saying, Roger. Yep. And, uh, yeah, I understand that. And I, I, I see that it happens everywhere. And I see that the Bible, this is one way to characterize the whole written revelation of God's law, the revelation of his will by many different genres, the 66 books of the Bible is the story of God's people from the beginning to the end and how they have failed to just say no. Just they come, no, I'm not a part of this mess. But the question is, Roger, and this is the hard thing, how do you operate outside of it? Uh, how do you get out of Babylon, as you like to say, and that's what the Bible says, that that is not easy. And that is why we get to the Newer Testament and I'll... I think you have something to say. Is that right, Roger? No, I was, no, no. I was muted out for a second, actually. <laughs> oh, I thought you were. I want to let you stop and let you talk. We get to the Newer Testament. We went over this not long ago on Sunday morning. John chapter eight. Uh, John chapter. No, it's John chapter nine. The man that was born blind. 
and he, uh, Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God, took away his blindness. And then when the Pharisees saw it, they came to him and said, God, what are we going to do? He's, this guy is he's, he's suspending the laws of nature. He's making the blind to see. So they got this guy aside and they said, how'd this happen? He said, look, dude, I don't know how it happened. All I know is once I was blind and now I can see. I can't tell you much more than that, but I will testify to that because it happened to me. I can say that. They said, look, you either tell us that this was a trick or something. Give, give us something we can use against this guy. And they did. I'm not quoting the Bible. That's really what it amounted to. And he said, I can't tell you anything else. Said, uh, maybe you fellows want to be his disciples, too. Is that what it is? <laughs> he, he got kicked off at him. That's just what he, they wanted to hear, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they couldn't get anything out of him. So here's what they did, Roger. This is the key phrase. They threw him out of the synagogue. Ooh. Then, then, then they went to his parents. And they said, look, what happened here? We're going to ask you, and you better tell us straight up how this happened. This cannot be true. Something else is going on here. You tell us. And they said they got scared because they knew the power, what it meant to be cast out of the synagogue. So they said, well, we don't know. It didn't happen to us. He's, besides, they said, he is of age. He is no longer a child. He is competent to testify. You must ask him. Well, they ended up throwing all of them out of the synagogue. And the old King James says you were cast out of the synagogue. Well, if you're cast out of the synagogue, what that means is, in that day, and they had a lock on it, just like they about got a lock on it here, that means you can't buy or sell nothing. And you, don't, you can't buy or sell. You can't live. Go ahead. And you don't get to get a handouts from the social system from their little Corban yeah. scam. Yes, Roger. That is correct. You are excluded entirely from the system. And that is the system we're talking about today. And God says, get out of Babylon. Well, that's what he says. Well, well, let me tell you how they got it structured today is that's not totally true today because they have to recognize the old status to keep the system constitutional on its face. And so on its face. face. And so when, uh, when I went to apply for social security and I get this question a lot from people that get into my, our research and our findings is what about social Uh security? Well, what about it? You know, social security, you don't have to be a citizen of the United States or a resident to participate. You can be a citizen of Japan, citizen of India. You can be an Aussie or anybody else as long as you want to give them that that little bit every month and let them steal 90% and give you back 10% down the line. Uh, that's fine. Uh-huh. Okay. And uh-huh. so uh, also you'll notice we touched on it yesterday in all the documents. You'll you'll see U.S. national. We've just never known what it was before and what it meant. And 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 they go to the to the length and the passport application. It's the only place I've seen it is the passport application in the oath. And it uh-huh. says non-citizen national. Otherwise, it's just referred to as U.S. national. I-9 form. And now they can't go out and, and deny you of anything because you're this other status. Or now we can wield their discrimination laws against them. Okay. Uh, but, a little bit. Uh, but I'll get to you a second, Chris. But in the oath, and I've put a lot of thought into this because that's so important, the oath of the passport application, because that's the document that really symbolizes it, and they have to put the accurate information in the application to pass the Office and Management and Budget Paperwork Reduction Act requirements. So it's all stated in there, but boy, do they go to links to hide it. Okay. For instance, they never ask you in the passport application, are you a citizen of the United States or a U.S. A US national? 
but they ask you what your parents were because it's the feudal system and if your parents were citizens of the united states there's the presumption that you're born into it they allow you to have a way to get out by putting the warning uh, uh, language in there warning you can attach documentation etc etc and that's your get out of jail free card but they couch it in a very intimidating manner but under this oath if you go to the oath of the passport application by the way they've changed it since i started putting this information out they've got a, a, a another line at the bottom that says i have read and understand the warning box on whatever page that yeah. didn't, that oh, didn't yeah. used to be in there okay so uh, you don't think this information is valid well, the most one of the most important offices up there has changed their most important form because they got caught with their hands feet and proboscis in the slavery jar okay that's why they changed it all right but in that oath it specifically states i certify under penalty of perjury that i'm a citizen of the united states parentheses or a non-citizen national that's the only place i've found that they refer to it as that and the the reason that i believe they did it is for to to trick the people that take the time to read the oath in the first place and i'm sure that's a very minimal percentage okay but they're sitting there and they go okay well i certify under penalty of perjury i'm a citizen of the united states parentheses or a non-citizen national well look I don't know what a national is, but I know I'm a citizen because that's what I've been taught and brainwashed my whole life. And this is a non-citizen, so I know I can't be one of them. Uh-huh. Yeah, do you see how devious? That's in the immigration passport form and that warning box comes from the Immigration Naturalization Act, 8 U.S.C. 1101 at set. Capital A, 22, parenthetical B, not A, parenthetical A exclusively. And these differentiator between A and B on the immigration and passport, 8 U.S.C. 1101, A22, parenthetical B, are the equivocal, uh, not equivocal, uh, irrefutable facts from the Secretary of State and the Passport and Immigration Office, and that's where they hide this stuff partially a lot of a lot of other things go on too but that is the critical delineator well you know one office one of these executive agencies brent that i have uh, just over the years i've figured out that it's really a pivotal one for them in this scheme the department of the interior the the first place you'd go look right <laughs> Right. That's I'm like telling the you. The place to go look that gets food stamps would be the local um, U.S. agricultural office, but that's where, it's, that's where it is. Go ahead. Well, just these sons of Belial, man. And, and, and what you learn by seeing all this stuff and being able to put it together and understand it is just what snakes these people are. Oh, man. Well, obviously the word snakes is operative here because that was the first experience of our grandpa Adam and our grandma Eve with the personage behind the evil empire, a snake. That's the way it's presented, and it's presented that way then throughout the entire Bible from beginning to end, the snake slithering on its belly, 
dangerous. And and did you see in that birthing video that in Australia they used to keep them in that satanic building with Satan sitting atop the door, and now they've moved it over to the new glass building with the snake on the side of it. <laughs> oh yeah, these guys ain't messing around. Well, you can you can uh, choose. It, this gets too complicated for me, uh, Roger. All these laws and all that. And, I'm a lawyer. I just say, I don't care. All this detail, you take it. It doesn't has nothing to do with me. Yep. You don't understand it. I can't understand it. It's a ruse. You know it's a ruse, so I'm just not participating. Well, I don't want anything to do with it. Well, let's use Chris's injection there a minute ago as an example of what you're saying. As Chris comes out, he's spent tons of time learning this stuff, where it is, how to cite it. And when you start throwing that out at people, you've lost them. Okay, Just a ultra small percentage of people will follow through with that. But if you go to the conceptual level and get them the concept, then you can go in if you want to follow up to that length and go into all that stuff and start to pick it apart. But our chances of getting to the concept from working our way up through the bottom of all that interference they've put in there intentionally is virtually nil. Roger. This this is true. How crazy this all is! The information in the U.S. Code about the Social Security number is under Section Six Six Six. That's true. Yeah. And in Canada, and no, it is. You just go type in uh, Section Six 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 of the Code, and it'll probably come right up. And you just read it right there. Same thing is true in Canada. I forget how they connected to Six Six Six. They don't call it Social Security number. They call it Social Services number. Something like that. It has the same acronym, I think. But all, all of the, they, they think it's funny, and all of this is true. They want to identify with the evil empire. Well, they have they, to. They, they have yeah. to tell you. It's their own rules yeah. that they've got to tell you. But they couch it in these ways that virtually nobody can understand but them. But why would they put the Social Security number laws under Section Six Six Six? Well, big, big, glaring numbers. Well, well why would they do that? I, I, just laugh and intimidate well i don't know yeah probably to get a big kick out of it but uh but i've come to understand and this is a big myth mythology in our community is the social security number is the nexus to the system that's just not true it's this act of being born and having that birth certificate put into the government computer where they take the birth certificate out and go put it in a safe now that's brian howard's research straight from the gal's mouth that does it okay yeah. So there's well, the nexus. That's the shift in presumption. The Social Security number is a tracking number in some way to number Israel, if you will. I have discovered that if you don't have a Social Security number, there's not much they do to you. They'll back off. They'll push. They'll try to sign one to you. But if you don't accept it, then ultimately they'll back off. Well, I'll tell you what John, what John used to say is he'd say, I don't have a social security number. I have an account and the number designates the account, but I do not have a number. In other words, the government may assign it, but I don't accept it. And I don't know anything about it, but there are people that are born and they never have never applied. Their parents never applied. And those folk are out on their own. And I've seen the government try to do things to them and it doesn't happen well, right? for years, try to do things to them, and finally just drop it. You know? Yep. 
Well, listen, you know we're uh, we're getting towards the end here, and 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 I want to be sure, people, if this is the first time you've been exposed to this this guy, this this mystery man, Brent Allen Winters, that rides in here on Friday, I want you to know where you can get more of him. So, why don't you tell him, Brent? Thank you, Roger, as always. I appreciate you allowing me to come on and talk with you fellas, but uh, just go to commonlawyer.com, www.commonlawyer.com, and you can see there uh, books that are available. Among those is uh, tr A Common Lawyer Translates and Annotates the Bible. I call it the winterized version because that's what other people call it, from the original tongues with over 13,000 footnotes. And then a comparative law text of 958 pages called Excellence of the Common Law, comparing and contrasting the law of the land with the law of the city from the founding of the city of Babylon forward. And then a lot of MP3 clips you can find there. Also, my books are available if you type in my name, Brent Allen Winters, at Amazon.com. That's where they're really available. Well, Brent, when you go to get me a copy of your Bible you get in printed, put one of those common law books in there, too, if you would, please. Yeah, yeah, you still got that coming. Yeah. Man, Roger. Well, I get to meet your buddy next week. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, listen, uh, the, uh, the birth certificate video, if you didn't go look it up on YouTube, will be posted at the end of the show description on CastBox today. Y'all try and do some homework on this. I have a feeling it's going to be a pretty big topic of discussion next week. I'd love to see everybody uh, that is interested be able to have a good background, and maybe we can put something together here. I think this thing may be potentially very powerful for us. Brent, as always, thanks a lot. Don't let any cows hit you out there in the panhandle. Chris? Good to hear from you, as always. We didn't have a bunch of people contributing today from the outside, but we covered a lot of good, good, fertile ground. We'll be back doing it again on Monday. Have a good weekend. Strap yourself in. We're real close to those times, buddy. The, uh, the Jacob's Problems, I think they call them. My phone's ringing. I'm getting out of here. Y'all have a good weekend. Ciao. Thank you for blessing us with your presence, Brent. Glad you could make it. Thanks for filling in. That <laughs> was important, Chris. Uh, so shifting burdens are used by dangerous pronouns. It's really their number. It's not your number. Oh, good point. I like it. <laughs> <laughs>